The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. We have finally set some of the major pieces in place. The Citizens Alliance, the Farmer Labor Party and Governor Floyd B. Olson, the Marxist Trotskyist members of the Communist League, Vincent Ray Dunn and Carl Skoglund, as well as some of the changes in labor law following the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Hopefully, the hard work of setting the stage will help us play out the action. Now, we have to introduce the last major institution, the Teamsters. In today's episode, we return to Minneapolis in 1933 and 1934, discuss the political, economic, and labor conditions in the city, why Dunn and Skoglund envisioned the coal yards as the foundation of a working-class revolt, a brief history of the Teamsters in Minneapolis and some of the key figures within the local and international, and yes, finally, the first Minneapolis Teamster strike of 1934. This episode has a lot of content. The setup for just the first strike involved much more than I initially thought it would, so I've done my best to interweave the major points and themes throughout. I'll say that I think the details are worth sharing. It's in the nitty-gritty that I think some of the most valuable lessons from the strike can be learned. And we will begin the drama of 1934 right now. As we have so far covered, the working class of Minnesota and Minneapolis had won some measure of political power, perhaps only apparent, through the farmer labor government of Floyd B. Olson and the New Deal presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The political terrain of capitalism had changed, perhaps only slightly, in the direction of labor. The Trotskyists had been working the coal yards for nearly six years, building their reputations and forming connections with the truckers and helpers. In Marx's terms, the objective conditions, farmer labor right governorship, Section 7A of the National Industrial Recovery Act, the slight recovery in Minneapolis, etc., pointed to a rebalancing of social forces, but still required the injection of the subjective element, the workers themselves and the Trotskyists who would help them. As Minneapolis endured the Great Depression, the Citizens' Alliance held its grip over the city's economy. Minneapolis had elected a farmer laborite to the mayor's seat along Floyd B. Olson's election to the governorship in 1931, but in 1933, a Republican took over, A.G. Buzz Bainbridge, a former theater director with no prior political experience. Ironically, his father had organized the Painter, Paper Hangers, and Interior Decorators Union Number no. 186, but during World War I, he had also directed the Minneapolis Board of Education as a reactionary, considering any teacher who affiliated with the Wobblies as disloyal to the United States. Thus, a former union organizer, had become a puppet of Minnesota's World War I dictatorship, the Commission of Public Safety. His son, Buzz Bainbridge, had run on a pro-business platform, promising to attract conventions. True to his history with the theater, he had announced his candidacy for the mayor's seat on Friday the 13th, with the picture posing with an open umbrella and a black cat. His apparently cheerful demeanor contrasted with his most faithful political appointment in the early days of his tenure. 
After receiving 200 communications from businessmen in support, Buzz appointed Mike Johannes as police chief. Johannes had worked within Minneapolis law enforcement since 1909, serving several of those years as chief special agent of the FBI's Minnesota district. He had risen through the ranks and would direct the police throughout the strikes of 1934. Thus, the Citizens Alliance had just the mayor and police chief they desired to fend off labor militancy. As for the city's economy, historian Brian Palmer summarizes the situation within Minneapolis this way, quote, In 1932, fully 86% of Minneapolis manufacturing plants were losing money. Key industries like flour milling and meatpacking were operating at 65% capacity. If the cost of living had indeed dropped 20%, payrolls had crashed even lower to 35% of pre-Depression levels. Minneapolis workers, men and women, whether or not they were organized within a union, were ravaged by the usual maladies of the era. Wage cuts, job losses, stretchouts, and attacks on any and all who advocated alternatives to the uninhibited reign of capital. Within urban Hennepin County, by the winter of 1932 to 1933, some 68,500 were unemployed, those persons dependent on public assistance swelling to 120,000 in number. In 1934, almost one in three people in Minneapolis and Hennepin County were reliant on some kind of dole, end quote. Those with jobs struggled as well. The percentage of the employed making less than $20 per week grew from 28% in 1928 to 60% and many worked longer hours. Many of the few unions that had survived now collapsed, the number of dues-paying unionist workers halving to 7,000. Strikes that did occur, usually among the building trades, lost. But throughout 1933, Minneapolis had begun to recover, albeit weakly. Overall, it had fared better than other Midwestern cities. Even the employers welcomed the hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into their economy from federal New Deal programs. They were more wary, however, of the National Industrial Recovery Act, especially Section 7A, discussed in the last episode. Minneapolis industrialist Charles Pillsbury saw the provision as containing quote-unquote real dynamite. But employers felt free to fire any workers who joined a union. Indeed, Minneapolis remained well known as one of the most open shop towns in the country due to the persistent strength of the Minneapolis Citizens Alliance. In 1934, it was 800 businessmen strong, with a permanent paid staff and a legion of undercover informants. The co-founder and president, Albert Strong, boasted that even the building trades, the city's unionized core, had been weakened during his tenure. As noted, though, within Minneapolis and Minnesota, a remarkable contradiction had begun to emerge. As journalist Charles Walker put it, quote, Labor, by joining hands with a farmer, had won a measure of political power. But in the meantime, labor's economic power lagged. Who had put the Farmer Labor Administration in power? The farmer, of course, the small businessmen, and organized labor, what there was of it, but also unorganized and potentially organizable labor in the Twin Cities, end quote. There was a sleeping giant in the heart of the city economy, waiting to be woken. While the Citizens' Alliance rested on its laurels, the Trotskyists had been busy organizing their co-workers among the coal yards. As much as Minneapolis may have begun to recover, the story was different for the city's working class. One worker who had so far had a rough go of it was 26-year-old Farrell Dobbs. Farrell Dobbs was born July 25, 1907, in Queen City, Missouri. 
Dobbs' family moved to Minneapolis when he was young, graduating from North High School in 1925. Shortly after, he began to work for the Western Electric Company as an installer of Telephone Central office equipment and married his high school sweetheart, Marvel Shaw. She, too, will play a critical role in the strike as a leader of the Women's Auxiliary, to which we will dedicate a later episode. Following a promotion to planning engineer, Dobbs and Shaw ended up in Omaha. At this point, Dobbs considered himself a conservative Republican, voting for Herbert Hoover in 1927. But two events, one global and one local, triggered a shift in his political thought. The global event that shook Dobbs was the Japanese Empire's destruction and murder of a Chinese city. While the empire had obliterated the working class district, it had left the upper class district alone. The second event occurred when Dobbs sat in on a meeting of higher-ups in which they discussed the firing of one of his co-workers and acquaintances for the purpose of saving the company pension money. He presumed that they had asked him to attend so as to give them some cover. These two experiences signaled to Dobbs the class divisions at society's foundation. He now knew to which class he belonged. Quitting the job, Dobbs and Shaw returned to Minneapolis, both of them dreaming of attending the university, Dobbs to become a judge and dispense some justice, in his words. He would attend college first, and once he landed a job, Shaw would then attend. However, now living in the midst of the Great Depression, they found life tougher than expected, relying on their parents for help in growing their own vegetables. In September 1933, Dobbs joined the Pittsburgh Coal Company, where his father worked as a mechanical superintendent. It was through shoveling coal that the couple's lives would take on a new direction, permanently. In the meantime, Dobbs worked 60 hours per week for $18 total, but soon his hours were cut to 48 per week. The situation was typical among the city's truck drivers. Like many workers in the same position, Dobbs enjoyed the relief from the backbreaking work, but was left with less money to live. Such are the contradictions of capitalist society. But while working in the coal yard, his dreams of attending university, or at least having a decent-paying job, sinking, another young man approached him. His name was Grant Dunn, and he put forward an appealing proposition. How about joining the union and striking against the bosses? The union to which Grant Dunn had offered membership to Dobbs was the Teamsters. Specifically, General Chuck Drivers and Helpers Union Local 574 of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Chauffeurs, Stablemen, and Helpers. We will refer to it as simply 574. Historically, Teamsters were the drivers of a team of draft animals drawing a wagon, but in the 20th century, they had become the truck drivers. The specific local, 574, was organized rather late in the early 1920s, and at the beginning of 1933, it had somewhere between 75 and 175 members, and very little in way of money. Most of the union's membership and activity revolved around the taxi drivers and the coal yards. Some of the coal yards tolerated the union for the purpose of getting union business. The Teamsters had a number of other locals within the Twin Cities, including an equivalent general truck drivers local in St. Paul, as well as locals for milk drivers and ice drivers within Minneapolis. These splits among the sections suggested to Dobbs that the divisions may have been put in place to keep the bureaucrats in control. More on that later. But even with these other Minneapolis locals included, the Teamsters numbered about 1,000 across all of the region's locals, although historians give a range of numbers for that. The Teamsters had a long history with the Citizens Alliance in Minneapolis. 
At the peak of Minneapolis's labor conflicts, as described in Episode 2, the Teamsters had also tried their hand at a strike in 1916. As trucking companies increased their hauling rates, the union demanded higher wages, threatening a strike. The CA recognized the danger of a Teamster strike immediately, all the way back in 1916. They said, quote, When all modes of transportation are unionized, then the union controls the delivery of everything. You cannot make a single exception, end quote. Fearing that the Teamsters could shut down the city, the employers played hardball and refused to recognize the union. Busting the union now would prevent having to negotiate with a more powerful union later. The strike began, and by the end of the week, 1,200 workers had walked off the job. Mayor Wallace Nye, himself a co-founder of the CA, intervened on Capital's behalf. True to the CA's policy of keeping so-called industrial peace, he ordered a quarter of the city's police force onto non-union trucks to protect the scab drivers. And in one instance, a cop beat a teamster with his gun. The city's labor movement voted for a general strike, but it never materialized. This escalation in turn galvanized the CA. They launched a public campaign reiterating their belief, quote, that every person has an absolute right to work regardless of whether or not they were in the union. Employers have, quote, the right to carry on his legitimate business without interference and is entitled to sufficient protection, end quote. And furthermore, they supported the mayor and the police in their efforts to protect life and property, maintain the public peace, and enforcing the laws. This is all to say it was the police's obligation to break the strike. The CA soon raised over $20,000 from its business members to pay for additional police. In one day, the police arrested 68 strikers who led efforts to stop trucks, released on the condition that they would no longer participate in strike actions. In their war against labor, the employers, the mayor, the police, and the courts worked together to decapitate the strike. Within two months, the strike collapsed and the union was devastated. Only 139 members remained. The Citizens Alliance had spent $25,000, or with inflation, $630,000 in today's money, to defeat them. As historian William Milliken writes, the Teamsters, quote, had inadvertently created the business oligarchy that would rule Minneapolis industry for the next two decades, end quote. Until 1934, when these two rivals once again took to the streets. Now, why had Dunn and Skogland envisioned Local 574 as ground zero for working-class insurgents when they entered the coal yards back in 1928? Prior to their expulsion from the Communist Party, the leadership had wanted Dunn and Skogland to organize the flour mills, the source of what economic might Minneapolis still had. However, there was no union, not even a company-organized union, and they did not have the skills and training to work its jobs. Not to mention that they would be taking on an industry with direct experience in violently breaking strikes. But recall from episode 4 that Dunn, Skogland, and the Communist League had an antithetical approach to the trade union question than the Communist Party at this time. The Communist Party predicted an imminent worldwide revolution and began to organize so-called Red Unions, outside the Federation of the Conservative AFL. The Trotskyists sympathized with this reasoning, dealing with the AFL was ridiculously frustrating, as we will see, but they rejected the creation of competitors to the existing unions on the grounds that this would artificially split the working class against itself. Rather, Ray Dunn said, quote, The thing we wanted above all over things, be in the mass movement somewhere, doing something, organizing something, end quote. Thus, the Minneapolis Trotskyists, once they were expelled in 1928, numbering about 30, 
were free to cut between the two currents, avoiding both the Communist Party and strong AFL bureaucracies, or so they hoped. They entered a small, neglected, poverty-stricken AFL union with the strongest potential to grow, and the strongest leverage over the city's economy, Local 574 of the Teamsters. To be more specific, Dunn and Skoglin reasoned that 574 had some of the most potential to grow among the city's unions. It was a general driver's union, a miscellaneous assortment of truck drivers from throughout the city who did not fit within the established Teamster crafts, such as milk driving or ice delivery. The idea was that if 574 organized enough drivers from one of these crafts, they'd be spun out into a new union, although this had never happened given the defeats of the Minneapolis labor movement throughout the 20s. While the Teamsters had designed this local to be a temporary catch-all then, the Trotskyists had another idea. Likely based in their syndicalist roots among the Wobblies, 574 could be the germ of an industrial union, one that included all of the workers in the industry regardless of specific job, role, or skill level. Should a strike erupt, 574, being a general union, was positioned to accept any driver, helper, or inside worker, disregarding whatever the bureaucracy thought. That is, this craft-oriented union, the Teamsters, had planted the seed of an industrial union on its own soil. Organizing 574 was a party affair. The Trotskyists were a democratic centralist political party, meaning Dunn and Skoglin had to win approval from the 30-odd members of the branch, which they did, to prioritize their efforts. Once approved, the members of the Communist League would dedicate their time, energy, personnel, and resources to the campaign. Ray Dunn would play the leading role. Skoglin recused himself, despite his experience in leading the 1919 and 1922 rail strikes, on the grounds that the employers and the newspapers would undermine the strike by implicating him as a foreign agitator from Sweden. Ray Dunn, on the other hand, was not only experienced, but had run as a senator in 1928 on the Communist Party ticket, making him well-known among local unionists and potential recruits. This was also facilitated by his position as the waymaster for Leditra Dixon, a somewhat supervisory role that awarded him trust from both managers and workers, each of them relying on him to certify the weight of their loads of coal. The campaign would be further strengthened from inside the coal yards by Dunn's two younger brothers, Grant and Miles, as well as experienced unionists outside, Oscar Coover, a skilled electrician in the building trades, and C.R. Headland, a locomotive engineer. But a major goal of this first strike was to locate young workers to develop into leadership for further battles. Farrell Dobbs was one of these young workers. Just as Miles Dunn had spoken with Dobbs about the union, the socialists sounded out individual workers one by one throughout 1933. Issuing leaflets or hosting an open meeting were far too risky. It was better to slowly build support, but it wasn't easy. Rather than organizing within a single workplace like a factory, the coal truckers were dispersed among 62 coal yards throughout the city. When Deletra Dixon merged with a few other yards to become fuel distributors, a larger pool of workers became accessible, and through this they recruited future strike leaders Harry DeBoer and Kelly Postel. While organizing workers, Miles Dunn had managed to join 574 in 1931. Skoglin had joined the union first but had to keep his head low, given his history. Both Ray, who couldn't join, and Skoglin were too well known, but Miles, with his humorous good nature, had a less pronounced history as a radical. Through his involvement in the Union, Miles discovered local 574's president Bill Brown's hostility towards the majority of the executive committee. 
Not only had Brown contested the rejection of Dunn and later expulsion of Scoglin from the Union ranks, he had tired of the locals' timidity and conservatism. Bill Brown had entered the trucking trade in 1919, mostly hauling freight for the transfer industry. That is, he was not among the coal yards. In 1925, he had organized a union picnic, the most active measure the council would allow him. For this work, he was elected the locals' president in 1927 and remained popular among the rank and file. Dobbs later characterized Brown as a, quote, fighter by nature and a gifted speaker, one of the best mass agitators I ever heard. As an activist in the Farmer Labor Party, he was somewhat above average in political consciousness, even though he lacked a revolutionary understanding of the class struggle. As it was, Bill's sound class instincts came to the fore. He wanted to give the bosses a real battle, and he welcomed help from the people who knew how to organize a fight, end quote. Brown had won the support of the local's vice president, George Frosig, but clashed with the other five members of the executive board, mired in business unionism. As he put it later, quote, For some reason or other, the Teamsters Council gave me the job of international organizer in 1933. So I decided to work with a few men in the union who knew how to organize. They were the Dunn Boys, who were working in the coal yards at the time in Carl Skogland, end quote. The socialists devise a plot to win over workers. With the authority and clout that came with being the waymaster, Dunn convinced his bosses to host a beer bust for the workers to raise quote-unquote company morale. The bosses were so taken with the idea that they financed both the rental hall and the beer. Some members within the Communist League criticized the plan on the grounds that it was a collaboration with the bosses. They were concerned that the result would be a boss-directed company union, which had flourished after the passage of Section 7A, although the organizers dismissed it as unfounded. And while this event was a success, the organizing work was full of hazards. Indeed, earlier in the spring, fuel distributors had fired Dunn, claiming that his political speeches in public, quote-unquote, embarrassed them. Some of the yard workers wanted to declare a protest strike, but the socialists themselves discouraged it. It was then spring, and they had no leverage. Its purpose would have been to protect the waymaster anyway, a semi-supervisory position, and concerned only a single yard. Not only would a strike have been a fruitless endeavor, it would have actively harmed the unionization effort. Ray was thus forced to take public relief. In the autumn, some of the coal yards caught wind of the unionization efforts, Section 7A having made them warier than usual, and ordered Skoglund to cut out the union talk or lose his job. Skoglund submitted a resolution to the union urging for a more aggressive organizing drive that ended only in his expulsion from 574. To pacify any restlessness within the ranks, the council called for workers to patronize only the nine unionized coal yards. Their conservatism was not wholly unwarranted. They surely worried over the dangers presented by the Citizens' Alliance should they become too aggressive. At the same time, though, Bill Brown scoffed at Skoglund's expulsion and recognized that his union's timidity would get them nowhere fast. Using his popularity among the rank and file and building off the outside work of the Trotskyists, Brown convinced the Teamsters Joint Council to formally begin organizing the coal yards. Coal delivery workers were soon the most numerous within the local. Again, as Minneapolis had begun its recovery, truckers struggled to make ends meet. Conditions varied among those working within the trucking industry. The strongest divisions were between the drivers, the helpers, and the inside workers. Some drivers and helpers drove company-owned trucks, while other drivers owned their trucks, essentially as independent contractors, who then had to use their pay to hire a helper. 
Those who own their truck face precarity, their livelihood resting on a functioning and expensive piece of equipment for which they had indebted themselves to purchase and modify for cold delivery. These workers, especially the underpaid helpers, had to supplement their income with public relief. Some drivers and helpers worked by the hour, some by the ton, both of which were unreliable given their dependency on how much coal was being ordered at the time. When drivers and helpers were waiting for work, they convened in the doghouse, a small heated shack to play card games and talk, a good spot for union organizing. Not all coal yard workers are drivers and helpers, though, and this division is essential to our story. Some workers remained within the yard to unload railroad cars and load delivery trucks. These were the so-called inside workers. Whereas the drivers and helpers had autonomy while on the road delivering coal, the inside workers were more like factory workers, under constant supervision and surveillance with few breaks. The hierarchy placed the inside workers in the yards and warehouses at the bottom, seen as performing mindless drudgery, only in initiation to becoming a helper and eventually a driver. Bill Brown and the Trotskyists wanted them in. Teamsters officialdom did not. This conservative union regime was overseen and controlled by Daniel Tobin, the president of the Teamsters International. An Irish Catholic immigrant born in 1875, Tobin began his career in the coal yards of Boston, becoming union president in 1907 and serving all the way until 1952. Tobin considered strikes an action of last resort and established the bureaucratic measures to prevent them. He was also especially opposed to the inclusion of inside workers, holding on to craft unionism, having fought off the issue with the Minneapolis Milk Drivers Union all the way back in 1911. He especially did not want workers in the union, quote, if they were going to strike tomorrow. Needless to say, Tobin's positions put him on a collision course with the Minneapolis Teamsters. But Brown and the Trotskyists considered the inclusion of the inside workers absolutely essential, as will be shown by their tenacious refusal to exclude them throughout all of 1934. As I said, I think it reflected their own personal experiences among the industrial unionists, the Wobblies. It also had the practical implication of preventing employers from making use of a potential source of replacement drivers and strike breakers. As historian Philip Korth suggests, quote, Each type of work had a different status, a different feel about it, and the workers had distinct interests that could have undermined union bonds. But these workers developed a system of sharing, that reinforced the sense that they were all in it together, and that overcame difficulties inherent in such work relationships, end quote. Keeping these workers together, despite craft divisions or differences in skill, and despite the vitriol and violence that was to come, was a major victory of these organizers. This unity among the workers may partially be also due to the collective strain suffered under the Great Depression and the dictatorship of the Citizens' Alliance. Times were tough not only in the coal yards, but in the trucking trade in general. Many worked for low wages and long hours with no overtime pay, frequently relying on public relief as supplementary income. The taxi drivers, for example, worked on commission and made as little as 6 to $8 for 84 hours of work per week. As Brown suggested, quote, conditions were lousy, and there was plenty of sentiment for the union, end quote. The unity of the workers would be further forged through class struggle. Beryl Dobbs recalled that, quote, wiseacres of the day spoke pontifically about the passivity of the working class, never understanding that the seeming docility of the workers at a given time is a relative thing. 
the workers are more or less holding their own in daily life and expecting that they can get ahead slowly, they won't tend to radicalize. Things are different when they are losing ground and the future looks precarious to them. Then, a change begins to occur in their attitude, which is not always immediately apparent. The tinder of discontent begins to pile up. Any spark can light it, and once lit, the fire can spread rapidly. End quote. And one spark was the presence of the Trotskyists with a long history of participation in the class struggle. While younger workers, such as Farrell Dobbs and Harry DeBoer, were radicalizing and did not carry with them the demoralizing defeats of the past several decades, they were inexperienced and could be easily misled. This small but experienced contingent of socialist leaders, particularly Dunn and Scogland, and later James Cannon, stored with them the memory of the working class, bridging 1934 to 1919 and 1922. These socialists had no illusions that a revolutionary situation was on the horizon, but they knew that the working class was ready to fight. As Dobbs later declared, quote, the tycoons who ran the Citizens' Alliance had sown the wind, and they were about to reap the whirlwind. This is 1934 Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening.